Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. The instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please signal by pressing star zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much. Cody and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. This program is being done in collaboration with the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, um, and we're delighted to be partnering with them on today's program. And this is part one of Life with Bladder Cancer. And today's program is going to focus on treatment updates for bladder cancer. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Segan, and Eurogen Pharma. And I would like to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today. There's over 203 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, and really just all different regions of the country. And we also have international participants today from Canada, India and the United Kingdom, so it's a global call as well. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Gary Steinberg. Dr. Steinberg is Professor, Department of Urology at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, Director, Urology Bladder Cancer Program, Urologist and Surgical Oncologist, NYU Langone Health, Immediate Past Chairperson of the BCAN Scientific Advisory Board. And Dr. Steinberg will be addressing an overview of bladder cancer, including staging, grading, and standard of care in the context of COVID-19, and new and emerging treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Steinberg. Thank you very much for the introduction. And um, uh, we have a lot of, uh, of information to cover, so let's kind of go right into it. As we know, bladder cancer is one of those diseases that, unfortunately, many people do not know that much about, but it is a very common disease. It's overall the uh, 11th most common disease, but it is the fourth most common disease in men, and it is also fairly common in women, but, but more common in men than women. But the most important thing to re remember is that bladder cancer does occur in women as well, and we need to be very aware of that. All too often, uh, female patients that have blood in their urine are given antibiotics. Uh, they're sent to the GYN physician for uh, a gynecological examination. They're sent to the gastroenterologist, and it's only after uh, those uh, workups that they, somebody says, oh, the blood can be coming from the urine, and it can be related to bladder cancer. The way that we diagnose bladder cancer is fairly straightforward. It typically uh, involves uh, imaging of the uh, urinary tract, which can be ultrasound, but I think a lot of times we use something called a CT or CAT scan urogram. Uh, we also perform cystoscopy. Many times we perform cystoscopy in the office. If we think we see uh, something in the bladder on CT scan, we might go straight to the operating room for general anesthesia to perform something we call a transurethral resection of bladder tumor. This typically requires a general anesthetic. Sometimes it can be done with a spinal, but uh, it, it does require anesthesia. And this procedure is done to sample the bladder tissue, the bladder tumor, 
to obtain uh, what it looks like under the microscope, which is the grade, as well as the depth of penetration. If the tumor is contained within the bladder, uh, we can remove it completely through the telescope, and, and that has um, uh, therapeutic benefit as well as prognostic uh, and staging benefits. All uh, very most importantly, once we have the diagnosis, we, we give a risk category of the bladder cancer. Is it non-muscle invasive or is it muscle invasive? In the non-muscle invasive, which are about 70 to 80% of the patients when newly diagnosed, we need to decide, is it a low risk for recurrence or progression? Is it an intermediate risk or high risk? And so we can manage uh, bladder cancer by maintaining the bladder when it's non-muscle invasive, but the risk that the tumors can come back or that they uh, become uh, progressive, such as invading or going to other parts of the body, uh, those risks uh, are determined many times by the stage and the grade of the tumor, as well as the response to therapy. The most common therapy we use to help prevent bladder cancer from coming back to non-muscle invasive bladder cancers is something called BCG, Bacillus calmet-Warren. It is an immunotherapy. Uh, immunotherapy to help turn on a patient's own immune system to help prevent the bladder cancer from coming back. And it's our most effective form of therapy for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Typically, we're using it for patients with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer or high-grade. BCG, unfortunately, in the United States and Canada is in short supply due to only one uh, manufacturer of BCG that's FDA-approved called Tice BCG. Uh, however, BCG is used all over the world, and there are BC strains all over the world. And it's a very important part of overall immunization against tuberculosis uh, throughout the world. There is some evidence to suggest that BCG immunization uh, helps strengthen patients' overall immune systems and may, may have some role in combating COVID, whether it, it uh, can and prevent COVID or that it can uh, decrease symptoms. Uh, improved survival, all of that is being investigated, but there is some role uh, for a BCG in our uh, pandemic uh, uh, against COVID-19. Also, uh, you know, with non-Muslim basal bladder cancer, this requires frequent trips to the doctor for uh, cystoscopies, uh, uh, treatments with medication of the bladder. This has been made more difficult uh, during the pandemic, although Fortunately, I think things are, are settling down. One of my greatest concerns is that many patients, because of COVID-19, are afraid to go to the doctor or avoiding going to the doctor, and that bladder cancer uh, patients may have more um, uh, aggressive uh, tumors uh, diagnosed because of a delay. The most common reason that a patient uh, comes to see the urologist or, or comes to see their internist for uh, uh, bladder cancer is because of blood in the urine, uh, whether they can see it or it's a microscopic blood. Having said that about BCG, there are a whole list of new treatments available for bladder cancer in clinical trials. We have a new uh, therapy that's FDA approved, uh, that is pembrolizumab, which is a checkpoint inhibitor. This is a, uh, a form of immunotherapy that helps keep the immune system turned on to help eliminate any 
cancer itself. In addition to our checkpoint inhibitors, we have oncolytic vaccines. These are viruses that are specially uh, altered to turn on the immune system to help uh, kill bladder cancer cells. We have uh, cytokine therapy, which there's a new drug called Alt-803, which is uh, a medication that stimulates the immune system, something called IL-15, a natural killer, and, and T-cells to help kill cancer cells. N-Gene Bio is a DNA a plasma delivery system that also uh, carries cytokines, which turn on the immune system. And then uh, we have uh, antibody drug conjugates, so important of the dotin which is an antibody drug conjugate that binds to cancer cells and delivers a cancer chemotherapy specifically. That is now in clinical trials for non-Muslim invasive bladder cancer. It's FDA approved for patients with metastatic bladder cancer. And then last but not least, we have new ways to deliver bladder cancer medications. One is uh, uh, made by Eurogen, uh, uh, which is a gel. It's kind of a reverse jello. It, it's a liquid, but when it goes into in, in, into the bladder and it's heated to root, to body temperature, it becomes a gel, and it helps uh, uh, the cells uh, 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 be exposed to the chemotherapeutic drug to make it more effective. And there's something called TAR-200, which is a silicone tube that can carry various drugs. The silicone tube is placed in the bladder, and it can deliver chemotherapeutic drugs over a period of time. Both of these are to help improve the chemotherapy effect within the bladder while avoiding side effects of, of, the, of the drugs in the systemic circulation. Um, uh, all of these things, all of these new products are, are, are exciting. A lot of them are in clinical trials, and I think it's gonna change the way we manage bladder cancer. If we can treat non-muscle invasive bladder cancer more effectively, we can preserve patients' bladders and not uh, uh, be concerned about removing bladders or having it spread to other parts of the body. We also have a whole list of medications for muscle invasive and metastatic disease, but I think uh, Dr. Stadler will probably uh, cover that in his little presentation. Uh, I, I want to uh, be aware and keep on time, so I think I'm going to end it there and, and, and uh, proceed to our next speaker. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Steinberg, for your excellent presentation. Really very impressive and outstanding and really set the stage for today's program, so thank you very much. And uh, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Wasser Stadler, and Dr. Stadler is the Fred C. Buffett Professor, Dean for Clinical Research, Senior Advisor, Cancer Center Director, University of Chicago. And Dr. Stadler will be addressing the role of diagnostic technologies, genomics, precision medicine, and immunotherapy, and targeted treatments, predicting response to treatment. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stadler. So thank you very much, Ms. Mesner, and, and thanks, uh, Dr. Steinberg. Um, and I really appreciate the large number of, of uh, participants in this uh, in this conference call. Um, Dr. Steinberg and I have been friends and colleagues for many years, probably closer to decades. And so it's really a, a great pleasure for me to uh, join him on you know this discussion. And uh, he discussed what is really sort of the focus on localized bladder cancer. And as a medical oncologist, we think more about systemic and drug therapy, not only for uh, patients with locally advanced disease in which we think about um, utilizing drugs to decrease the risk of recurrence, 
um, but also in patients with um, metastatic disease or disease that has spread beyond the bladder and that uh, we're now treating with a great variety of drugs. Now, in the introduction, uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, targeted therapy and immunotherapy, and uh, Dr. Steinberg mentioned a couple of other labels. Um, one thing that I talk to about patients a lot is that we should probably step away a little bit from the labels that we use for different drugs, be it chemotherapy, be it immunotherapy, um, because while those may be important in regards to how we think about developing and how we think about um, you know, treatment mechanisms, so to speak, Oftentimes, what's most important for patients is to have an understanding of what is the likelihood that the, that the treatment is going to work and help, and what are the risks of the therapy. And those are much more important than, I think, uh, what we label these drugs as. And, and, and uh, the reason I mention this is that uh, for um, drug therapy, some of our traditional therapies that we've used in cancer for many years that sometimes are labeled as chemotherapies, remain some of the most important treatments that we have. And uh, whether we call it uh, chemotherapy or whether we call it uh, DNA-targeted therapy or DNA-repair-targeted therapy is sometimes, in my mind, less important than to have a discussion about, as I said, the uh, pluses and minuses of the treatment. So um, I was asked to also talk a little bit about, um, you know, diagnostic technologies, and I think that there are two aspects of this that we have to think about. Dr. Steinberg already mentioned a little bit about CAT scans and CT scans and CT urograms that are especially important in regards to staging for, from an initial purpose. I know that many patients um, come to talk to us and and are interested in you know, other uh, imaging modalities such as uh, MRI or PET scans. And probably the most important aspect here in our brief discussion is the value of PET scans because the most common PET scan that is utilized these days is FDG PET. And while that might be useful in bladder cancer in terms of um, making diagnosis for some of the cancer that may have spread to other regions of the body. An important limitation of FDG PET scans are that we are often uh, interested in trying to understand whether the cancer has spread to some of the lymph nodes around the bladder. And actually, FDG PET scan is sometimes not so helpful simply because the contrast agent here is excreted into the bladder and can obscure some of the findings. I think that um, you know the other part of diagnosis. I think that's uh, that is important. Is a little bit to think about the issues of um, genomics and sometimes how we think about um, predicting um, predicting benefit from therapy based on some of the molecular alterations that might be within the cancer and. Um, perhaps some of the markers that are being expressed by the cancer on the surface of the cancer cells. In regards to some of the mutations, I think it's becoming increasingly important. 
that we understand what those mutations are and, there's in, and uh, there is growing technology to get these answers quickly from the samples, either the biopsy samples or uh, if there has to be more major surgeries such as a cystectomy or removal of the bladder from that tissue. And there are, you know, uh, several drugs that are available based on what the mutations within the tumor might be. And these include things like ertafitinib for um, cancers that have FGFR mutations or afatinib and other drugs that might be specific for cancers that have ERB-B2 mutations. The details are not so important for this conversation, but I think from a patient perspective, having the conversation with the treating physician saying, have you tested, and if so, and if not, why not have you tested for some of the molecular abnormalities? There are other things that are out there that um, are becoming or will likely become important over the years, and that includes things like some of this expression profiling and further classification of bladder cancer based on some of the genomic signatures. Those are not quite ready yet for clinical intervention, but I think it is um, a, a emerging area that we should be um, paying attention to. With immunotherapy, um, one of the things that can sometimes be important in terms of characterizing um, the cancer is what we call PDL1 staining. And, and the reason that's important is that many of our immune therapy agents, one of the drugs that we utilize um, is um, specifically or is especially effective in cancers that have high staining of this PDL1. And so that might be useful in certain scenarios as well in regards to making some decisions regarding um, the, the uh, treatment. So I, I'm going to finish up here basically to say that it's important to have a good picture from imaging of where the cancer might be. Sometimes that involves just a CAT scan. Sometimes it involves something more um, high-tech, such as an FDG uh, PET scan. We sometimes need a little bit more information from the cancer tissue, including what some of the mutations um, might be. And then we need to have discussions regarding the most effective therapy for the stage at which uh, a patient's cancer might be at. And there's a number of different drugs, including still some of our traditional drugs that uh, fall at least under the label of chemotherapy. And happy to address any additional questions, but I'll hand it back to Ms. Mesmer for now. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stadler. That was a wonderful presentation, um, very outstanding, and really lots of good information for our participants. And I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Stadler. And our next speaker is Dr. Vadim Koshkin. And Dr. Koshkin is genitourinary medical oncologist, assistant professor, medicine, School of Medicine, University of California, San Francisco. And Dr. Koshkin will be addressing communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns and clinical trials, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. 
my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Koshkin. Thank you so much for the very nice introduction. And um, it is an honor to really be here today and speak here today as part of this panel, also with uh, Dr. Stadler, Dr. Steinberg, and everyone else. Uh, there are two main topics that I will uh, address today, um, which are a little bit different than, than uh, the topics that Dr. Steinberg and Stadler were talking about before. And one is about communicating with your healthcare team about important topics, um, including uh, quality of life and clinical trials. And then the second topic is about uh, preparing for appointments, particularly as we enter this post-pandemic era, where uh, many visits are now done being done virtually. So starting with the importance of communicating with um, your healthcare team. Uh, many of the procedures and, and treatments that, that are now done for bladder cancer that Dr. Sadler and Steinberg uh, expertly went over um, are very uh, big procedures and very involved treatments that can really you know, significantly affect patients' everyday life and patients' day-to-day. -day. So to the extent that it is possible, I think it is very important to try um, and understand uh, from a patient's point of view uh, what, it'll be, what it would be like to go through a treatment like that. Um, so what is it like, for instance, to, to you know, have what, what does life look like following a cystectomy or treatment with radiation? Or, or uh, what does life look like, you know, while on chemotherapy or immunotherapy treatments or treatments with other drugs? Uh, and, of course, what is it that is um, important to you as a patient and how will the particular treatment affect those things? Regarding specific treatment, it is, I feel, important to ask the details of the treatment being offered from, um, you know, from your provider, from your doctor. Uh, these include logistics, so exactly where to go, how long it will take, things like that. Um, uh, of course, just generally what, what to expect with treatment and, and, of course, side effects. And then it is important, I feel, to also discuss um, from the outset what is the goal of the treatment being offered. Is it a curative treatment whose aim is to eradicate cancer completely, or is the treatment more to control the cancer, um, uh, otherwise known as palliative treatment. It is important to highlight that while it is impossible to predict exactly what someone will go through and to foresee every possible side effect that a patient may have, uh, we, we as doctors really, we, we try to do our best to highlight the most uh, common things to expect and what, uh, you know, from our experience, other patients have experienced before. Um, and this, this actually brings me to clinical trials and discussion of that. Um, clinical trials are, of course, very, a very important part of what we do, especially in the academic setting and in, in, the, in the university setting. Uh, trials help move the field forward. They help advance cancer care. Um, basically, every promising um, therapy, every promising cancer drug currently in use was likely at some point, probably not in a too distant past, the, the, a drug that was being studied in a clinical trial. For individual patients, though, I see clinical trials as representing additional um, opportunities for, for treatment. Uh, uh, these are additional opportunities to get potentially promising therapies that a patient would otherwise not be able to get elsewhere as part of the standard of care. Now, th this doesn't mean that this, the, the clinical trial treatment will necessarily work better, but there is a possibility that it will. Um, most clinical trials are rigorously designed and carefully chosen by the doctors who um, you know, choose to open them at their particular um, uh, medical center or clinic uh, and, and who offer them to patients. 
but precisely because these are usually new drugs, new therapies that are being studied in clinical trials, and they're not yet approved, um, we do not know um, everything about them. Or, or what we know about them is more limited than we know maybe uh, about other approved drugs. We uh, do not know all of their side effects, though perhaps we're able to anticipate some of them. We also do not know ultimately if a given drug will be as effective as was initially believed based on preclinical data, so basically uh, data generated from the lab, or, or data from earlier trials. But when considering a clinical trial, it's very important to ask um, your doctor really the following question. Uh, what are the potential treatments in this trial? So does, does everyone, uh, will everyone essentially get the same treatment or will treatments be selected uh, or will patients be selected for treatment somehow? So is there some randomization or other selection process that affects sort of what you would get? Um, and the different clinical trials really, really differ in regard to that. Uh, it is also important to ask what are the expected risks, or in other words, side effects of the trial. And of course, what are the potential benefits? And what are the alternatives to doing this trial? How, how good is the um, uh, standard of care, in other words? And then really based on the answers to these questions, uh, I think a patient uh, really determines for themselves um, whether the risk-benefit on on of going on a particular trial is, is, is favorable. And ideally, hopefully, the doctor offering you this trial will, will help guide you through this process and, and really hopefully do a lot of this for you. Now, um, I will switch gears a little bit uh, to talk about uh, uh, telehealth and telemedicine appointments and really the significant changes um, that have happened um, with this since uh, the beginning of the uh, pandemic. Uh, more and more patient visits are now being done virtually over platforms like Zoom and, and others. Uh, uh, and that's the case in medical oncology as well. Uh, this is a great convenience for many patients and, and for many physicians as well. Uh, increasingly important conversations are frequently done in these virtual visits and even important decisions are made. Uh, so if you are a patient who is having video visits with their uh, healthcare provider, with their oncologist, um, you have to make sure that this is something that you are comfortable with and also that the platform that is being used and the mode of communication actually works for you. In terms of important, important pointers for this, um, make sure that you know what, um, when your appointment, appointment is and essentially how to log on. Uh, for example, if you've never used a particular platform before, it's probably worthwhile to try it out um, uh, before the appointment um, to make sure that you really know how to, how to turn everything on, including sound. Uh, and uh, also making sure that you know where to reach out for technical support. So if an appointment does not uh, connect correctly or start as it should, which you know, can often happen, that you have the, the number to call that's usually in a doctor's office or clinic who you know, will be able to, to help you. Um, on the other hand, if you're really not comfortable with the uh, uh, this platform and this technology, have a family member or a friend who has maybe more facility with this um, there to help you. Uh, when, a patient's, when patients are just uh, starting out using these platforms, it can really be daunting, and uh, not just for patients, actually. I mean, I remember it was only a few years ago that uh, I was really figuring out how to use this. Um, I had never used, uh, you know, this mode of communication with patients really in, in training um, uh, where you're actually, you know, having a visit over video. Uh, and I really didn't think that this is how we would be doing things in the not-too-distant future, yet now it is, it is a very important tool. 
Uh, for the appointment itself, just like for any other useful meeting, um, uh, make sure that you have an agenda. So that can be as simple as saying, I just want the doctor to explain to me uh, what the plan is and really what to expect. Or it can be a lot more specific, so a detailed list of questions that you want really covered uh, uh, by, by your physician before the appointment. Um, in terms of which questions to ask, I really can't say that certain questions are more important than others or are better than others. I think most patients really ask questions that are important to them or to their loved ones. Um, therefore, these are the important questions. And to facilitate good communication, I think it is critical that, from the doctor's point of view to encourage patients to ask what is important to them um, while also you know, covering the big picture. One of the most uh, important roles that I think doctors and healthcare providers have is this ability and opportunity to educate you know, patients and their loved ones. I always keep that in mind, and um, I will conclude my presentation with that. Um, thank you, and I, I will hand it back. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Koshkin. That was really an excellent presentation and very informative to our participants about the, um, their role in terms of um, communicating with their healthcare team and really being sure to ask the questions that are of concern to them. And um, so, excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and our, our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden. And Ms. Burden is an oncology dietitian. She's with Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And she'll be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. Hey, um, thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. <clears throat> Nutrition and hydration are essential, um, not only just in your quality of life and being able to do the things that you enjoy doing, but also in your tolerance to treatment. Um, your diet might be modified either you know, during or maybe even after your cancer treatment to assist with managing any side effects. Some of the potential side effects you might experience include um, things like maybe mouth sores, diarrhea, constipation, nausea, maybe vomiting, um, decrease in appetite, and possibly fatigue. During your course of treatment, your nutritional needs can change just due to your tolerance, your unique needs, um, based on the treatment that you receive. And if you're not able to meet your nutrition goals, it may result in an intentional weight loss, potentially a delay in treatment. Um, and a dietitian is part of the healthcare team. Um, they can help with guiding you through any diet changes to help with managing the side effects you might be experiencing, um, give you information on ways to increase calories and protein and discuss your fluid needs and how to achieve that um, and achieve, achieve those goals. And even if you're overweight, I hear this a lot from patients. Um, oh, I have some weight to lose. I've been trying to lose 20 pounds for the last 10 years. And um, one, one thing I always remind patients is this isn't the time to really focus on the weight loss, but rather nourishing yourself appropriately. Um, there might be some weight change, and it, and it can happen during treatment, but you need to be mindful of nourishing your body appropriately. Um, when nutrition needs aren't met, what happens is the protein in your body, such as um, the sources like muscle, um, can oftentimes be used for energy. And we use our muscles a lot for the endurance um, to do the things that we enjoy, for breathing, chewing, swallowing, you must not think about it, but muscles all over our body. And if we're not eating enough, oftentimes that can be a source of energy for our body. 
And so if that muscle is utilized, it can result in an increase in fatigue, um, you not being able to do the things that you enjoy or have the energy to do the things that you enjoy. So um, weight is something that could be part of your conversation with your healthcare team at different times, but know that a dietitian can help support you. There are some medications um, to assist with side effects. Um, and if you're experiencing side effects, address it with your team as soon as possible. Um, if the sooner we know, the sooner we can help support you and um, keep you as comfortable as we can. But maintaining hydration is oftentimes left off the conversation because we focus so much on eating and weight maintenance. But dehydration can actually amplify some of the side effects that you may experience, such as nausea and fatigue. And being dehydrated can often make you feel dizzy and just lightheaded. But fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, so things like water, milk, sports drinks. And a general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Um, in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team, and we're all dedicated to helping support you. So please communicate with us so that we can um, address your needs as quickly as possible. I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thanks so much, Ms. Bearden. And I have to say, Ms. Bearden is kind of like a resident dietitian. She speaks on a lot of our programs, a very esteemed colleague, and delighted to have you on board today. So thanks. Um, they're usually your questions for you, Diana, during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Stephanie Chisholm. And Dr. Chisholm is Director of Education and Advocacy, Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, or BCAN. And she'll be addressing Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN's free programs and events. And we'll also be addressing, um, um, we'll give you information of how to contact BCAN. Uh, Stephanie? Thank you, Carolyn. It's <clears throat> excuse me, always a delight <clears throat> to be part of these programs with such an esteemed group of speakers. And it just reminds me that there's so much excitement. There are new treatments that are being developed by so many people who are working so hard to improve the lives of bladder cancer patients. That is very rewarding to see. So I appreciate that and want to let everybody know that Beacon has a lot more information on all of the things that were discussed today. The science is going on, and if you visit us on our website, it's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Go to bcan.org, and there you're going to find some basic information about your disease, everything from understanding <clears throat> risk factors and diagnosis and surveillance to exploring in depth with video and text more about your treatment options and survivorship issues. We're adding new material on a regular basis, and I think it's really exciting to see that we have a Bladder Cancer Matters podcast that you could subscribe to that features a patient advocate, Rick Bangs, who does an incredible job speaking with both medical professionals and researchers and patients to help bring bladder cancer to the forefront you're ever looking to speak to somebody who's gone through the journey, because it's a scary journey, before, please reach out and get connected with our Survivor to Survivor program, where trained volunteers will share their experience with a variety of different treatment options. And again, visit us at bcan.org on the website. I invite you all to join us outside of the BWI airport near Baltimore 
in September on the 30th and October 1st for our 2022 Bladder Cancer Summit for patients and families. If, again, go to our website, put in Summit 2022, and you will see all the information to register. Everything Beacon does is free of charge. We have a clinical trial dashboard that only shows you the clinical trials that are open and recruiting in the United States, and you can search by your disease diagnosis, everything from muscle invasive all the way through to advanced disease, and by the geographic state that you could have access to. So I really encourage you to take a look at our website for additional information. And I'm excited to say that we're in the final process of even coming up with a new digital treatment matrix where you'll be able to look up your diagnosis and then look up your treatment options and find out more about the specifics of every treatment, what it can do for you and what to expect as far as potential side effects. So these are all exciting things. And again, I encourage you to go to our website, bcan.org to get a lot of the answers to many of the questions that you might have for our speakers today, including recipes. We have recipes and a lot of nutritional videos as well. Thanks so much, Carolyn. Thank you, Stephanie, for that um, excellent presentation. And it's a wonderful resource for everyone to have on this program. So do take advantage, if you haven't already, of BCAN. Thank you. And now I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care Services before we move on to the questions that you may have for our speakers. Um, so Cancer Care is a national a nonprofit organization. All of our programs and services are free. So we serve all cancers, including bladder cancer. Um, and so um, many people call our Hope Line. Um, it's 800-813-4673. And for those participants um, um, who call that number, you'll speak to an oncology social worker. We have about 45 of them. So they'll take your call when you call. And usually people ask specific questions. Um, however, the social worker that they speak to addresses their question, helps them with it, and then identifies for them all the other services that they can access for cancer care. So what are those services? So cancer care does offer practical, financial, and co-payment assistance. That's an important service that we offer, um, particularly at this time, but it's always been an important part of cancer care's 78-year-old history. It's very important to provide practical and financial assistance. We also offer case management services. So if we do not have the service that you require, we will connect you virtually to an organization that will be able to meet your needs. Often those issues have to do with food insecurity, not having, food, not having enough money for food or for rent or mortgage payments. And in those instances, we do um, connect you either to a local, regional, or national organization that can help you with that. We also offer online support groups, quite a few of them. Um, and we also offer just support, a chance to really talk um, with one of our oncology social workers on a regular basis. Um, and we also offer um, uh, these programs, about 80 of them this past year. Um, these workshops are available on many different topics and many different um, types of cancer, and they are available live as they are right now, but they also, within a day or two, are on our website as a podcast. We have uh, hundreds of podcasts on different topics and types of cancer for you to listen to. And you can listen to this program again if you wish to. 
And also for our international participants, just to be aware that um, you can visit our website, post your question, and our staff will help you to find resources in your community. So um, please do utilize our website for that purpose. And also people in the U.S. may also choose to post their question on our website as well, in addition to calling our hotline. I hope that gives you a thumbnail sketch of our services. And now we're going to move on to um, our questions, um, all the questions for our speakers. I'm going to have Cody bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to um, take as many of your questions as possible. Um, and so, um, so um, I'm going to start with. Um, so this is for Dr. Steinberg. How are treatment choices made for made when they said chemotherapy versus radiation therapy versus surgery for bladder cancer patients? You know, you addressed this, but if you could address it, and then again for this um, participant, that would be very helpful. That, that's an excellent question, and I believe that this is something that is uh, rapidly evolving. I think that when we have patients who have muscle invasive bladder cancer that's otherwise contained, one of the things that we uh, strongly consider is using neoadjuvant, that's chemotherapy up front for these patients. Uh, certainly there are new, there's new information based on what the tumor looks like uh, under the microscope as well as the uh, uh, genomic evaluation of these tumors that will help predict for us the, uh, uh, how well that these tumors will respond to chemotherapy. In addition, we think that there may be some uh, new information from genomics that help predict how patients would respond to radiation therapy. I think that in the past, we've had relatively strict criteria for patients who should be treated with radiation therapy. It's typically a smaller tumor, four centimeters in size, usually a solitary tumor. Uh, it does, there's no additional carcinoma in situ. There's no evidence of a vascular or lymphatic invasion or a tumor outside of the bladder. There's no what we call hydronephrosis or blocking of the kidney. And so in, in, in some patients, uh, uh, radiation is, uh, is sufficient and patients do very well. However, I think that still in the United States, uh, the gold standard is still radical cystectomy, which is removal of the bladder and prostate in men removal of the bladder and female pelvic organs in women with urinary tract reconstruction. Uh, we do a lot of continent urinary reconstruction, meaning where we make new bladders so that patients do not have to have ostomies or wear uh, ostomy bags. But I think that, that um, uh, the decision-making is really important, uh, a discussion between the medical oncologist, the urologist, the patient, um, uh, making sure that we optimize cancer control uh, uh, and try to minimize uh, uh, side effects. Uh, but clearly, there is more uh, evolution in our bladder preservation approaches. And this may also include not just chemotherapy, but immunotherapy or combinations of chemotherapy and immunotherapy to preserve the bladder. Excellent. Um, and. Um for um, thank you very much, um, excellent uh, excellent response. <laughs> and um, uh, Dr. Stadler, a question for you: um, Are there specific screenings for bladder cancer? Should I get my children screened? 
Um, th thanks for asking that question. Um, so bladder cancer, um, for the most part, um, is a disease of environmental exposures. Um, most common um, in the world is uh, smoking. Um, other common causes include things like um, chronic infections in patients that might have uh, um, incomplete uh, bladder emptying from, for example, pleuroplegia or something like that. Um, it is not a disease that is generally considered to be um, hereditary, and thus the uh, screening for children is generally not recommended. Thank you. And Dr. Koshkin, um, during recovery, what precautions should I adhere to? Do I need to make any lifestyle changes? Yeah, that, that is an excellent question, and um, I think one that patients um, ask a lot. Uh, of course, you know, this depends on, uh, of course, what recovery we're referring to, whether this is from surgery or from, from another treatment. Um, and uh, uh, so the, the specific recommendations for that will vary as a result. So, But, again, I think this is a situation where it's just pretty important to clarify with um you know your particular doctor, your particular provider. What uh, what exactly the precautions um, should be, uh, and you know for the particular situation. Um, uh, but but generally speaking, you know there there are just um, uh, I, I would I would say pretty general um, uh, sort of common sense precautions of. Uh, uh, um, you know, keeping good hygiene and sort of, sort of avoiding um, exposure to 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 infections is uh, is uh, uh, kind of a general uh, advice I give to patients, sort of following chemo and also uh, following surgery. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and um, uh, for Dr. Um, Stadler, what are why are there different types of immunotherapies? How do I know which is best for someone with bladder cancer? The most common immunotherapy that we utilize in bladder cancer are some of the uh, PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors. There's uh, probably, I lose track, but there's a four or five drugs that are out there that fit into that class. Um, and frankly, it's not clear that there's a heck of a lot of difference between each one of these drugs. Um, I think that there are other things that are out there that are labeled as immunotherapy. I think that many of those um, are investigational or experimental in nature, and that's probably best discussed in the context of a specific clinical trial. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Steinberg, during recovery, what precautions should I adhere to? Do I need to make any lifestyle changes? Yes, I think that um, uh, if you smoke, stop. I think that uh, anything that you can do that is heart healthy uh, uh, is is uh, uh, beneficial. Uh, exercise, uh, eating a, a heart healthy, balanced diet. Um, um, but I think that again, it depends on what type of therapy you've had, and and uh, uh, which will detail the the uh, recovery uh, pathway. But, but I think that in general, all of us, uh, we have to remember that the number one cause of mortality in the United States in men and women is heart disease. Uh, so anything that we can do to protect our heart uh, is going to have some beneficial effects to our recovery from cancer therapy. Thank you. 
Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, and for Dr. Koshkin, could you say a little bit more about should I exercise during treatment? If you could comment on that. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question, and also yeah, one that uh, patients I think ask a lot. Um, uh, in regards to, um, you know, so specifically systemic treatments like chemotherapy, chemotherapy. And my, you know, my response is always to basically, you know, try to do as much as you can and as, as you're comfortable with. Um, uh, you know, obviously patients and different people have different um, exercise routines or um, uh, and different exercise tolerance. So, uh, you know, someone who, uh, you know, runs, uh, you know, two miles a day at baseline uh, probably maybe won't be able to do quite as much while they're on chemotherapy, but should, you know, still try to stay active. Um, someone who does, you know, less than that or maybe doesn't exercise at all, um, I, would, I would encourage to um, at least have, you know, minimal physical activity, at least, uh, you know, like, like, you know, trying to get out of the house every day, for instance. Uh, just, you know, going for a walk, things, things like that, as long as, again, you, again, sort of feel up to it. Um, and these these are sort of the general uh, recommendations I, I give to patients in this situation. Um, thank you. And a question from Ms. Bearden. What foods should I eat if I have diarrhea? Well, it's important to know the source of the diarrhea first. Um, if it's a side effect from medications, oftentimes it can be. Um, making sure that you've talked with your doctor about um, all the times they'll implement a medication to help address that and that you understand how to take it and when to take it. Um, as far as um, diet goes, like I said, it depends on the source of the diarrhea, but um, sometimes medications can cause diarrhea as well, not just the treatment itself, but other medications can. So, um, But if we're looking at just diet, it's about um, increasing Soluble fiber. Um, soluble fiber is um, found a lot in our breads and pastas um, and can be very helpful, especially if um, you're needing something to bind the stool. Um, oftentimes, you know, insoluble fibers like fruits and vegetables of the skin and in the raw form can. In, at times aggravate diarrhea. So um, really knowing the source of the diarrhea is important on how to address it, but um, it could be as simple as increasing some of the soluble fiber, reducing foods like sugary foods, greasy foods, fatty foods that can actually result in diarrhea for some patients, um, and then talking with your healthcare team about, you know, where is this coming from, and, and that's, you know, a good place to start first, and then, um, and then be directed from there. Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Stadler. I was offered the clinical trial adalizumab and chemo in the muscle invasive setting, new trial with 30 patients. I declined and started chemo only, mainly because we have read about the possibility of tumor rapid growth in some cases with immunotherapy and specifically adalizumab. The article suggested that more testing could be done with the patients. Um, to see if I would be falling in this possible group that does react badly to immunotherapy. Do you know about these tests, and how can I find more about them? So this is a, obviously a very individual question. Um, if you could address it 
um, Dr. Stadler in a general way that might help people understand? Um, yeah, I, I, I think that there's, there's two aspects about this. I mean, the first aspect, obviously, it has to do with um, consenting um, for a clinical trial. And uh, as always, and as was um, already uh, mentioned previously um, in this uh, the teleconference here, that's a personal decision. We provide patients with what are the potential expected benefits. We provide patients with the expected toxicities and emphasize that in the context of a clinical trial, the, um, there will always be side effects and toxicities that are unknown, and patients then can decide, as in any kind of treatment, whether it is worth it to them to participate. So I have no problems with, with well-informed patients saying, listen, I've read through what the trial is here to offer. I have concerns. I, don't want, to, I want to follow just the standard of care, and that's perfectly okay. I think the other question that is embedded here a little bit is this concept of hyperprogression in the context of immunotherapy. Um, there is a lot of skepticism as to whether this truly exists or does not exist. There is a simple observation that some patients who get a treatment, regardless of what that treatment might be, who have rapidly progressive disease even under treatment. The challenge obviously is whether that rapid progression of disease is simply what would have happened naturally even if the patient did not get treatment or whether this was somehow caused or induced by, in this case, the immunotherapy. I would just say that this is a controversial issue. There's no consensus. And if there is what we call hyperprogression from immunotherapy in bladder cancer, it is exceedingly rare. Well, thank you so much. This is, um, I have to say, this has been an extraordinary call. Um, all of you have been really wonderful on this call. I want to thank you each for your presentations and just for your, both of your presentations and for the, for the Q&A and your wonderful responsiveness to our participants. I want to thank you all. and. Um, I also want to actually um, address uh, just the entire call that um, I want to thank all of our participants for asking such great questions. I want to thank our speakers for giving such terrific answers to the questions. Um, and um, I, I do want to just go over the fact that we don't want anyone to leave this program feeling that you're alone in coping with, um, you know, with, with bladder cancer. Um, um, I want you to know that you're all now part of a uh, community of support and that we are here to help you. Um, you have basically, we've given you information about the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network as a great resource. And um, also, we've also given you information about cancer care. And, and we will, um, within a day, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation. And in that evaluation will be an evaluation. We always appreciate your filling that out. But there also will be information about other resources in addition to Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network and Cancer Care that you can contact, some that offer 24-hour call centers, some that offer all sorts of different services that we want you to be able to take advantage of. In addition to your healthcare team, we never want to sidestep your healthcare team. So for those of you who had a chance 
to ask a question today. For those of you who have a question that you didn't get to ask but would like to ask, or for those of you who are thinking of a question, please take what you've learned today from today's program, take it back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, and they are best able to then address your questions, and you hopefully have some information in addition of what you've learned today that will better inform the question you ask your healthcare team. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect.